0: You have rarely met a girl like Laura. Few women have been so beautiful, so exotic, so dangerous to know. It was as natural for Laura to be picked out from among thousands of alluring girls as it was for her to be surrounded
1: by luxury, mystery, and scheming men. You better watch out, McPherson, or you'll end up in a psychiatric ward. I don't think I've ever had a patient who fell in love with a corpse
2: ticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to Ticklish Business, the podcast devoted to honoring and deconstructing classic cinema. This is Kim again, and today I am joined by... Drea Clark
0: i Samantha
2: Ellis. Today we are diving into some fun stuff. Like I have been promoting throughout the last couple of episodes, guess what month it is, guys? It is November. So today we're coming at the episode with a th- Three pronged approach here. We are looking at Laura, which will lead us to a film noir discussion, of course, because this is one of the greatest film noirs if we dive into it. And also Gene Tierney, Dana Andrews, Clifton Webb, there is so much to talk about there. Before we get into the meat of the discussion, I do want to quickly throw out Laura is 77 years old this year. However, this movie does have a fairly substantial plot twist spoiler, which comes up about halfway through. And unfortunately, we cannot discuss this film without diving into the plot twist. So if you are worried about getting the 77 year old film spoiled, Why don't you watch it this November and then come back and listen to our discussion at the end of the month? That way you won't have it spoiled and you can keep up. Let's start with a general question. So what is your experience with Laura?
1: I like that version of that question because it makes it sound like talk us through your emotional journey as you watch this (laughs) film rather than when did you watch it? As I just confessed to the two of you, this was a first time viewing for me. And it is such a cornerstone film. I think I thought I had seen it or something. Oh, and then i been there. Right. And then it started. And it's like, you know, Gene Tierney's face so well. I was like, sure, sure. Yeah, I know this. Beautiful. Yeah. Uh huh. I know. Th-. But I hadn't seen it. I've talked about it. I've heard about it. I hadn't seen it. And it's reminiscent of so many things that I love beyond just noir, but. I love a mystery. A lot of good noir does feel like a mystery, but a lot of it doesn't have that. A lot of it, you know exactly who did what. You're just wondering if they're going to get away with it, that kind of thing. This had a genuine mystery to it. I think Agatha Christie was the first author that I read everything of Like when I was nine. I had no idea what was going on with them, but I loved them. There was something about this of like actual clues and reveals. And it is a very rare thing for a film. You know, we are people who watch a lot of movies and to watch something and honestly be like, oh, I don't know who it is was so thrilling for the experience of watching it. Kim, that was like above and beyond everything else I was enjoying. The fact that the mystery was actually mysterious. What a ride. I loved that. Awesome. How about you, Samantha?
0: As I was telling you guys before we started, I definitely have a history with this film. I've seen it many, many times. I've introduced it to several film friends. Like if I'm looking for a classic movie that's maybe a little moodier, not super sunshine and rainbows like Marilyn Monroe or and Rogers or something, I'll put on Laura. Like almost every time. I've introduced this to a lot of people and I've seen it many times. The aspect of this movie that I feel like I've kind of latched onto over the years that I feel like doesn't get talked about enough is the romantic aspect. I think this is a very, very romantic movie. And the love that McPherson has for Laura and how it develops through this film, I feel like is one of the most underrated classic film romances. And that's the angle that it gets me.
1: I would definitely be happy to talk about that further. When we're, we going, going, sure yeah, we're yeah. going to, I'm sure we're going to. I don't think i had ever My head went wanted... a couple of places as soon as you said that. So we
2: <laughs> are going to have to do that.
0: Absolutely. I feel like I haven't rooted for two characters to get together so much and overanalyzed every glance. And interaction between two characters, at least in a noir, maybe in any classic film. This one for me, I'm just all over their relationship.
2: Shipping them hardcore, huh?
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. I ship them hardcore, you guys. But I mean, super strong supporting cast, the cinematography, the score that everyone talks about. It is one of those perfect films for me.
2: I'm a really a similar book with that. I had a very long film noir phase. Film noir was next to musicals, kind of the thing that got me into classic film. Granted, that was tied in with my crush on Richard Whitmark, which dates back to like middle school or something like that. But that propelled me into noir, which took me to this movie. This is one of those movies that's just always kind of been there. Then there's that whole Dana Andrews thing. You know, you can't go wrong with the fedora and the coat and the smoky noir lighting and all of that. So this is, I'm in the same boat as Samantha in terms of I've seen this movie so many times. I probably couldn't even come to how many times. It's just, it's one of those films that you can call a perfect movie for me. And really it's a gateway film to me. One of those ones that you dive into and these like Samantha just said, oh, the, the performances, the look of this film, there's just the supporting cast is so deep and so rich and it just speaks for itself. That propels me into the next thing I was thinking of. For anyone who might not necessarily be familiar, how do you define film noir? This is a film noir classic. We've talked about that. How do you define film noir in your head? What do you think about
0: That is a very loaded question. (laughs) I think so many film noir fans really struggle with that question because there are so many answers and noir has such a wide scope compared to other genres of what can fit into it that it's a little harder to define than something like a musical. It's like, if they sing, it's a musical. (laughs) You can't really pinpoint a noir quite as easily. But To defer to the knowledge of, I I couldn't bring up answering a noir question without bringing up Eddie Muller. He's my icon, my hero. We've had him on the show. His definition of a noir, not to misquote him, but I believe one of the things that he said that stuck with me is if your lead character is Unsavory and not someone to be rooting for, then you might have a noir on your hands. And of course, in addition to this, you've got the very classic shadowy noir lighting, a lot of detectives in noir. (laughs) So I would definitely put this under that category. Just sort of movies that really capture the underworld. The people who have dissected Laura, and when I wrote about this, in contrast to Where the Sidewalk Ends, which is another Gene Tierney, Dean Andrews pairing, they're kind of opposite sides of the same coin. Where the sidewalk ends is very classic, underground, gritty noir, but Laura is sort of a high society noir <laughs> by comparison. But I am very curious to hear your guys' definitions
1: as well. My thought of noir is it's a crime-centric story that focuses on the personalities of the crimes. And you often get it from a lot of noir is post something already having happened. It's less of like the unfolding of it and more because obviously another key component in noir is the detective role. Sometimes that's an actual detective. Sometimes it's a police officer. Sometimes it's a person trying to piece together something that went wrong in their lives. But it has this sort of like, oh, I'm unveiling clues because this crime happened. Like Samantha said, there's differing levels of society that you'll see noir based in, which is great because it's so much more about human responses in the like tightly compacted, emotionally fraught scenarios of what would ripple out from any given crime. Most of these crimes, like there's a murder, but you know, we've seen things where there's also a jewel stolen. Someone who's been like gaslit. There's other exciting criminal activity along with murder. But yeah, I think of them as crime-based human revelations. How's that? How's that look at a bumper sticker? I love that. And I do
2: have to throw this out as we determined last episode with Halloween or two episodes ago, we like crime.
0: (laughs) Very true. I think (laughs) noir appeals to all of us individually. And this noir specifically, as I mentioned, it really appeals to me for the romantic element. I love a good romance, you guys. You you know that. Not to mention Dana Andrews. Just saying, you can't. Uh, not you don't even have to Dana say. Andrews.
1: Can we just get into the romance because it's killing me now? Samantha's brought it up twice, and I have such heavy thoughts. So many thoughts. Before we get into it, here's
2: a short little ad for our Patreon. If you are a fan of old Hollywood, classic entertainment, and the joy of pop culture history in all its forms, please subscribe to our Patreon page like these wonderful people have. Christine Meyer, Danny, David Floyd, Jacob Haller, and MCF. Our Patreon website is located at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. Be sure to take a look at our other channels as well. We're on Twitter at ticklish underscore biz as well as YouTube and Instagram. Help us out. We're looking to get to 300 subscribers on Patreon so we can start a new ambitious series examining TCMs, must-see movies, and why they matter. Now, back to the show. Laura drops us into the action in a high society New York apartment. A police detective played by Dana Andrews is investigating what we believe to be the, the murder of Laura Hunt, played by Gene Tierney. And throughout the first act and a half or so, we kind of develop this rich blend of characters. We have a delightful gossip columnist, Waldo Lidecker, played by Clifton Webb, who took Laura Pygmalion-like, kind of molded her, turned her into, in his mind, the glamorous, beautiful society woman she became. She's built as this cunning career woman. We know what happened to career women in the 1940s. She met and fell in lust, love, with Shelby, played by a very young Vincent Price, and he, but he's also involved with a older society woman, the delightful, delightful Dame Judith Anderson, who we can never say good enough things about. And then it just turns into, is it a murder mystery? You know, when Laura shows up alive, like I said, there are spoilers in this podcast. It turns into who died and how that led to it. This auto-preminger directed the film.
1: And let's dive into the romance topic. It's important for, especially if you need a refresher, or if you've just decided to listen to this sight unseen of the film itself, that I'm assuming the romance that Samantha is speaking of is we have Dana Andrews playing the cop who at the beginning, Laura has been murdered. She was found with her face shot off in her own apartment. It's horrifying. He is based there in the most feminine, girly, frippery, don't even know what minimalism is apartment just sort of ensconced in all of her things, reading her diary and her letters and staring at her picture. And she looks like Jean Tierney. So The painting is to? the important thing. Yeah. That pa- painting. Painting of herself above her own fireplace, which I aspire to do myself one day. If I ever get a fireplace, I am putting nothing except for a painting of myself over it. So he's become very enamored and kind of obsessed with her. And then, of course, there's you can't talk about the romance without the first big reveal, which is da-da-da. He wakes up having fallen asleep in said frippery apartment. And Laura herself is standing there and is like, who dis? How are you in my house? Are you reading my diaries? What? (laughs) Huh? And she's so chill about it. She's like, who are you? I'm like, lady, it's amazing. I'm like, these people do not worry enough about the strangers who are in their super flowery homes. I feel like Samantha should speak first because I have a lot more what about this romance And you have a lot more, oh, so I feel it would be more fair if you spoke first. Let's do that.
0: That is possibly true. The more that I think about the romance, the more layers there are to it. And this is another one of those movies sort of similar to, and I say this every time I speak on this point, similar to My Man Godfrey, where it's one of my favorite movies of all time. I can never watch it the same way twice. Every time I watch it, I pick up on something new. I get a new insight, a new outlook. And the more I'm thinking about it as I sit here, one of the reasons why I love this and I love McPherson's character so much is there is some real male emotional development here. He starts in this movie with, oh yeah, because Waldo asked him if he's ever been in love right at the beginning. And he's like, a doll in Washington Heights once got a fox fur out of me. And he calls them dames and obviously has little respect or care for women at the start of the film. And then he finds himself emotionally invested in this crime. And you never really see a movie where a cop or detective falls in love with a murder victim. I find that so unique and fascinating. Loving true crime and loving romance. It's like, wow, let's combine them. So that to me is always fascinating, but he really gets some emotional investment here. He really sinks his teeth into the case and into her life. And he falls in love with her throughout the first half of the film. And it's so interesting to see their reactions once we see that Laura is alive. Because basically, for lack of a better phrase, he sort of has fanboyed over her. He's developed this mental picture of who she was based on him piecing together this crime and these people's lives. And then here he is seeing her in the flesh. So that must have been just an emotional blow. And then seeing how they actually interact and how their relationship develops over the second and third acts of the film. I think is just so fascinating. And it's really subtle too. They have one tiny peck on the cheek at the end or towards the end. But other than that, it is really, really minor. And you have to analyze and overanalyze like I have to really pick up on some of it. But I think just the fact that on both sides, it makes him grow as a person. And on her side, she has really only gone for these superficial, rich guys, as far as what we've seen. And here she is falling in love with this detective who's come from basically nothing. So it's really interesting. I don't know. I want Drea's thoughts, especially because this was her first time watching it. I want like the first initial reactions here.
1: Yeah. My first reaction was we see the detective staring at this enormous portrait of her and then Clifton Webb's character accuses of him of having fallen in love with her. And I was like, what's he talking about? I didn't get a single whisper of that. I was like, no, he's studying her stuff because he needs to. It's probably more comfortable than being in a police station. Of course, he's going to stay in this rich woman's apartment as long as he can. Not around a bunch of idiots and who smell and like have criminals coming in and out. No, stay amongst the flowers. Read a diary. So when Lidecker says oh I see you've fallen in love with her I'm like a you can't fall in love with someone that you don't know at all and b once that's suggested and I'm like oh is that what you want me to think because I didn't think it was pieced in very well because I love that idea of a detective falling in love with a dead woman is a really like gothic like what a cool concept I didn't see it at all. What I did see is she's a very beautiful woman who has been objectified her entire life, got ahead because of how she looked. Also her brains, but much like everything else Laura went through, the idea of this beautiful woman whose intelligence always had to come second to how people saw her visually and then the box they put her in. So on that side, I was like, well, it's nonsense to think he's fallen in love with her, even though thankfully he at least had access to like her letters and writing but it's the same as someone who reads my tweets doesn't know who i am you know but i found it more upsetting to think i didn't see her returning any emotional reactions to him i didn't see them like spending much time together when they had their like kiss at the end i was like wait what now it was ridiculous enough you thought that that was being set up for him to be interested When in the world did she return those? What have these people spoken about a single time that was not, I'm like, oh, Jesus, I'm on Lidecker's side, not the place you want to be when you're watching Laura. I was like, he's not wrong. I mean, he didn't go about it in the right way, but he's not wrong. Yeah, Dana Andrews looks like Dana Andrews get your kid off, lady. But this idea of, oh, there's this love story. Anyway, I honestly, I thought that was the weakest part for me is like, oh, I feel like they would have finessed that more if it had been made later on because I didn't get a sense. And I also, my difficulty too with the growth of the detective, I didn't see that at all. I found it more snobbery that he would presumably, the dames and dishes or whatever that he dated before were not as high class as her. And so Laura, just by virtue of her wealth and beauty, got to be given these characteristics of like a woman worthy of respect. Whereas the women of the lower society that he deigned to romance before, he could be dismissive. It made me dislike him that like he would make those delineations. I was like, what a jerk. Interesting.
2: Yeah. See, I think I come down almost squarely in the center. On this most recent rewatch, and it had been a little bit since I'd rewatched it in full, Preminger goes through such an effort, and it works because Jean Tierney is so ethereal. She's such an enigma throughout the first act of this film. She's a presence. She's this gorgeous painting, and this gorgeous painting is just the focus of the apartment. It's the focus of everything. You don't see Laura's side of things throughout because obviously we think she's dead throughout probably the first 40 minutes of the film. And the romance to me this time through was Dana Andrews, was Mark getting sucked into the enigma that is Laura. You've got that gorgeous haunting score playing throughout the song that, I mean, every from Andy Williams to Johnny Mercer is covered. I believe Johnny Mercer wrote the lyrics And he's getting just suckered in. He's getting pulled into the power that they seem to want to play up with her as a character. Does she fall for him? The romantic in me wants to say yes, but then the cynic in me says, do they fall in love or is he just a guy who's there at the right time? She's realizing that every single man who she's aligned herself with is either a horrible person, Shelby or crazy Waldo. Her entire life is crumbling essentially in front of her eyes. And I think Waldo says at one point, accuses her of, what does he say? A lean, strong body is what she's attracted to, or she's, and she hasn't had many of those. So he's there. Mark is there at the right time to kind of pull her back from this insanity that her life has descended into.
1: I very much thought that she read Shelby, right, from moment one, that she always knew because he was pretty upfront with her. I find Shelby a really interesting character. I'm certainly not like, oh, that's who she should have gone for. No, he was a garbage person. But he was also like, hey, can you light my cigarette? I'm a garbage person. Like, he was very upfront. With his failings, with his whatever, he has the most thinly veiled affair going on with her rich aunt, who might also be a sociopath, fun reveal. But Shelby, I felt like what Laura was responding to in him was, oh, well, in my experience in life, men are garbage. How refreshing that you know that about yourself. It definitely didn't feel like a love match, but it did feel like a, I can trust myself in this scenario. I'm not getting played in any way. You know, other than the Jacoby thing, like you get the hints of what she's gone through since her rise, because of we find out Liddecker's meddling in those. But there's certainly all of the years of her life and her experience with men before then, and again with looking like Gene Tierney, you have a Gene Tierney face, you attract a lot of garbage. Like it's just a oh, a magnet, a garbage magnet. And so I felt that it was the area where she was over it and maybe gave up, which is again, it would have opened the door for how nice. If I had had a single scene of her and Mark McPherson, where I felt like they were connecting on a level and sharing on a level outside of this case or as real people, I would have been all in for that because it is such an interesting blend of how he first found out about her. And for her, the idea of a man who sure saw her picture and was enamored with it, but got to know her because of her diary. Those are appealing things, right? I wanted like more for that to feel real instead of you to feel as superficial as the other things you've surrounded yourself with. Is Shelby a project? I like how
2: you kind of say he's a garbage person. Is he something that she just wants to fix? Is that the appeal there? I think she reads him right, but does she want to fix him? But it also leads to her having to go away and think about whether or not they want to get married.
0: I don't think Laura would have ever married Shelby, regardless of what happened. Like, I'm just going to put that out there first. I do completely agree that she read him correctly from the first. One of the things that I really do enjoy about them is that they have a very nice understanding of each other. I don't think that they ever lie to each other or sugarcoat aside from, you know, the whole Diane Redfern thing, yikes. But I do kind of like the way that she defends him to other people, not about things that he does, but about the way that he is, because he is someone that a lot of the other characters make very general and harsh assumptions about. The way that she defends him in that sense and showing that she knows him better I do appreciate, but you know, his garbage person actions kind of dampen things a little bit.
1: (laughs) Vincent Price is so, so good in this. He is. He's so good in this. And it's a really difficult role because you have to mistrust him. You're supposed to meet him. And it's also, it helps. like You forget the very looming physicality that Vincent Price has. Because if you're me and you often think of him later on when he's more like, rail thin and like kind of sinister this he's like this big strapping he's the biggest person in every room yet he is also has like a genteelness like you believe that he came up through this and that he's like well-mannered to the point of oiliness and I thought he did such a good job you need to understand what appeal he would hold for Laura or else it's that thing where you're like I don't like my heroine as much Because what is this? Whereas Shelby is like very comfortable and very fun. And then you see him like his whole thing of being really affectionate with the housekeeper that he keeps asking to marry him. And there's a charm to it. It is a disingenuous charm, but she knows that like it's a really hard balance of you need this male character that you believe she sees through, but is also just worthy enough that you're not completely like, oh, she is the bad idea queen. He skirts that line so well, I think.
0: I completely agree. Vincent Price fits into a very unique role in this film. He almost has a goofiness to him sometimes in his interactions with the cook, but then you're also supposed to believe that he might be a murderer. So that is a very wide range and I don't think anybody but Vincent Price could have pulled something like that off. And it's so fascinating because we were talking a little bit about him before we started recording. This was like his sixth film. And really, before this, he was in either forgettable or supporting roles. He was so, so young. I think anyone who's mm-hmm. a Vincent Price fan who hasn't seen something this early on is going to be quite shocked when they see him and Laura. But even more surprisingly, Vincent Price actually said that he considered this the greatest film he ever made.
2: I did read that. And I was just going to go out and say it, kids. If you have not seen a 1940s Vincent Price film, I am on the team that the 1940s Vincent Price is a dish. As someone who first time watched both Dragon Wick and... What was it? The House of Seven Gables this year. You have not lived if you have not seen an early Vincent Price film. He came out of the gate running with this film. I mean, I'm looking at his filmography right now. I mean, we have Song of Bernadette, which, yes, good film, but he's very supporting in that. House of Seven Gables, darn fine film. Invisible Man Returns, Private Lives of Elizabeth and Essex. So, some interesting
1: movies there, but I would say this is his arrival.
2: I love I why agree. you said that because
1: he is so comfortable. That's a thing right when we see Dars like that's mm-hmm. part of it is just this level of comfort that they have in a scene in themselves in a moment and there's a lot in this Preminger is a fantastic director for like suspense and moment this is pre you know he's not like ooh I'd really like some soviet style moving camera and like no he is a very locked off theatrical shooter. And because of that, you know, you get wider shots. The further out you get and you see how people move, the more awkward they can look, especially when you have really mannered blocking, like, okay, you need to go from here to here. And this is all really sort of like technical to say that Vincent Price being this comfortable that young and working with people older than him or more experienced than him. But this is the perfect segue to talk about the real ingenue introduction of this movie, which is Clifton Webb, yes. who is talk about comfortable. It's so well written. This character is maybe the best written character I've seen in so, so long. There's the difference, right? If I'm looking at the romance of McPherson, the cop, and Laura, and I'm like, well, I feel like that could have used a little more pop. Lidecker does not need any polish. Lidecker's whole thing is like right there. And from the very moment you meet him when he is typing in his bathtub, something else I never knew I wanted, but now I do. And he's this like concave chest, but like still vigorous looking older man. And he has a a waspish kind of, not just that he's sharp tongued, it's just slightly a feat. It's, ooh, is he cosmopolitan? Or is he a homosexual? Or is he coded homosexual? Yeah, like yeah. It's, a, it's a really interesting and very deliberate red herring. It's throwing you off the scent in ways. But he is so good in this. He owns so much. He's so just like persilious, judgmental, and his whole thing of how he's steering her around. I looked this up and I was like, oh, I have clearly missed so many movies of the 30s and 40s with this star in them. And no, friends, I did not. He's like got a couple uncredited roles. So he's apparently this Broadway actor, but like the casting of Clifton Webb and then just being like, do your thing, man, was a stroke of genius to me. And, uh, and one that Otto Preminger had to fight for. And he was so right. Like those are good artist instincts of you want someone who is going to surprise you. And much like I'm so happy that Samantha brought up the other thing that was great about Vincent Price's you could believe that maybe he was the murderer and you needed that for Shelby. What you need for Lidecker is to not think that. And, but not in a way that when it's a reveal that you're like, what? It's like such a tricky layered so phone.
0: Yeah, I just have to throw out that it's hard for me to even believe looking at him that he's even capable of it. He just seems so scrawny. It's like Gene Tierney could take him in a fight. So, how could he have killed if, her if
1: she was armed? Yeah,
0: yeah, <laughs> anyway. Sorry, I, I just had to throw that out there.
2: No, to just to go back, Clifton Webb looking at his filmography, yeah, he had had six credited and uncredited roles he had between 1917 and 1930. And then, if you look at his filmography, it stops until this because he was out in New York. Gracing the Broadway stage, which is something that makes so 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 much sense with him. But as I was sitting down watching this, I kept getting stuck in that Waldo Lidecker persona, which is just if you've seen other Clifton Webb films, is really that Clifton Webb persona. He didn't really venture far past that. I was watching the Mister Belvedere's in Quarantine, and it's always him. I wanted to hear how you both read that character. How are we supposed to interpret that? Are we supposed to read that as a coded homosexual? Are we supposed to see him as something else? Because I did see what Lydecker is rumored to be based off of Alexander Walcott, a columnist from New York in the 30s. And I did listen to some radio clips of his and you can hear the similarities. Lidecker is the star to me of this film. It's the character you remember. He's dynamic, that wit. It was his first rollback and he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. I mean, to me that in a heck of a hard year. Well, what did you both think of that character?
1: I would believe both that he was gay and that he was not. Obviously a sexual relationship was not even his concern. So it didn't matter either way. His mentality of it made sense to me of, an extremely wealthy man, especially like making him a gossip columnist, like someone who just is toying with people all the time, the disconnect you would get from humanity with that role. If like you are seeing people in this way, he was so disinterested in her as a beautiful woman approaching his table when they first met. I didn't ever think like, oh, this is a guy who wants to get with her. Because I thought he could have made that happen before he pygmalioned her into like a very sophisticated woman, like when she was more of a struggling, like newbie or whatever. She did show a good amount of backbone, but I thought if that was just the end game, that would have happened. For me, it was a much more interesting and complicated relationship because it had a possessive element and it had this almost like a pet. Oh, I helped build her. And he like, again, continually gives her credit for having the intelligence and wit and shine and beauty rise up, but that he also wants the credit for like, I did this thing. I honed her. I introduced her her to people. I made her. And what he made her because he was like, oh, she is a rare gem and I like to collect nice things because his apartment is also chock full of nice things. And the idea of like, no, I would like this beautiful witty woman on my arm. She is my thing. Even in a, in one of the voiceovers, there's something about how like no one ever saw one of them without the other. They were always a pair around town. And I think for him, it was much more important that he had her as an accessory, like his carnation. It was part of what he was known for. It was like, oh yeah, I have a cane and I have a carnation and I have this woman. And these are all things that represent things about me that you should admire. And I have honed them and earned them and no one else can have them. Which is so much more complicated than just, oh, she's pretty and I should get to have sex with her and no one else, you know?
0: I could not agree more. Drea definitely hit the nail on the head with that assessment. I can't say it more to that, honestly, because I completely agree. It never felt sexual to me at all. I don't even want to think about it that way, to be honest with you. (laughs) But there was that obsession. Like, Laura was something that he possessed that he didn't want anyone else to have or ruin as far as the homosexuality to be honest I think that's much more of a Clifton Webb thing than a Waldo Lidecker thing but at the same time I cannot physically imagine anyone else playing this role he was born to play Waldo and if that leads to the character having any kind of homosexual connotations because he's just that gay then so be it (laughs)
1: I do think my other queer reading of it, though, would be the fact that, again, in our introductory scene, we see it's like off camera, but he meets the very attractive Detective McPherson who comes into his house and then he exposes himself to him. He stands up naked out of the bath and it's both kind of a power move of I'm so above you and so whatever. But there is bathhouses like there's a literal like lasciviousness. In historically of that kind of motion. And and I do think that because it's part of the introduction scene, there's something to take away from that. Like I said, it doesn't matter to me one way or another, because I think Lidecker reads either way, but that moment definitely stuck in my mind.
0: That's true. And I think the other, now that you bring that up, my mind also goes to, it's a line that we talked about earlier, where he accuses Laura of only being attracted to men for their strong, lean bodies. And I'm like, okay, that's a very sexual way to describe men. Uh, Interesting choice of words.
2: Liedacker is one of the best characters, I would say, to Grace cinema, And it's fascinating to think how different it could have been. Because I know, and we were talking about some alternate casting that we'll get into in a bit. I know I saw a number of articles saying Laird Krieger almost had this part. And you
0: know what I find so genius? I didn't get to say it earlier. But it's funny you say that about Waldo because I truly feel like Vincent Price, at least in the 40s, filled Laird Craiger's shoes after he died. I think he was sort of posed as Craiger's replacement in a lot of roles. I think in something like this where he plays Shelby or Dragonwick or any of these roles from the 40s, I think Craiger would have played them if he had been alive, so the fact that he was considered for Waldo, I think is fascinating.
2: diving into the filming of this and just how interesting that alternate casting was. Krieger almost being Waldo, and then the, what I found most interesting was reading into Jean Tierney and Laura, and how that was almost Jennifer Jones. She had gone through most of the casting process, and if you look at newspaper articles l a Times specifically she's tied to the movie within like a month of shooting. They were getting ready to start shooting spring of 1944. And Jennifer Jones and Gene Tierney were kind of horse racing it, but then it ended up swinging towards Jennifer Jones. But then I fell into some articles right after that. Jennifer Jones got the part, but did not report for shooting, which then ended up Starting a big lawsuit between 20th Century Fox and Selznick because various stories there, the multitude of articles, Selznick's stance was that they didn't send her the script, which was in her contract. So she decided not to report because she didn't know what she was walking into. But then various people, including Hedda Hopper, also had attributed a quote to her having some personal things going on, which in this film directly preceded her divorce from Robert Walker, with some articles saying she had to go to Reno and other articles saying she had to go to Mexico. So there were very interesting stories there. And since she did not do this film, her follow-up was Since You Went Away, which was... I'm a relatively solid follow-up for her as well. Samantha, you and I talked about this before and you're a Jennifer Jones fan, aren't you? D? How do you think it would have been with Jones in that part? Jennifer Jones
0: is sort of growing on me. I am definitely team Robert Walker when it comes to her personal life. And we've talked about this. Jennifer Jones fans are really going to come at me. I think she was brilliant on screen, so beautiful. Love Letters is a favorite of mine from the 40s. But I also believe that she was an opportunist off screen. Sorry. These are some strong words. Oh, you
2: went there. <laughs> I wasn't even going to go there. <laughs> as as Steve as Robert Walker, I concur. I didn't think we were going to go. I've totally misread you. <laughs> I'm
0: putting that, I, I love her. I, she's beautiful. Love her performances. But that's how I feel about her off screen. So as far as her playing Laura, I... Can kind of see it. I think she maybe was a little too modern. Something about her, and I think she would also lack a little bit of the mystery. I think those two things. She would have been fine, but I don't think this would have been the classic that it is without Jean Tierney or Dana Andrews, for that matter.
2: She was Song of Bernadette. She was Portrait of Jenny. She was so young, so innocent. She was that wide eyed muse. I don't know if we would have gotten the layering with. Laura, exactly. that Gene Tierney brought.
1: Jean Tierney, obviously, I think is incredible in this, but I do think she lacked a layer of sophistication or shrewdness, like an element of shrewdness. Laura should also be a suspect in the same way that you brought up with Vincent Price that you need to think he was capable of it. I need to think, oh, she is maybe pulling this over on all of them. If she would have been in her right. If she came into her home and saw her idiot fiance's mistress wearing her own nightgown, like Mm -hmm. I think that Jean Tierney did not have a level of either malicious, not even, I don't want Laura to be malicious, but she was missing a level that made me suspect her. And I do think if you had had an actress Mm -hmm. who was giving that on top of it, it would have enhanced it all the more. Because then you would have also been like, oh, what is this detective getting into? Like, it would have, do you know what I mean? It would have been like a whole misread. You could have had an early gone girl. Like she set this diary up, win someone over. Like that is really incredible to think about. Whereas Jean Tierney shows up with her wide eyes Mm -hmm. and her trench coat. She's like, who are you? Why are you in my home? You're like, oh, she's innocent. She doesn't know what's going on. Because, you know, like, they give the lies. There's the thing of, like, she says that the radio had been broken. You're supposed to suspect her. And yet, I don't think anyone watching this ever did. I didn't. That was a question I had. Samantha, what about you?
0: I think you have the spectrum of how Gone Girl is this going to go. You've got Jennifer Jones, who I think would have been way too innocent. Ridiculously innocent. You couldn't even imagine that she would have been involved in this, in my opinion. Then the middle of the road, we've got Jean, who you have the maybe she could a little bit, but probably not. But that little bit of doubt still makes things interesting. And then someone who we haven't discussed, who is also, she rejected the role, actually, was Hedy Lamar.
2: Ooh, I didn't hear that.
0: She rejected the role and she said that it was one of the greatest regrets of her career. And she specifically said, I would not have turned it down if I had heard the score first, which I think is really fascinating. But Hedy Lamar, I totally would have believed was the killer mm-hmm. if she played this role. And that would have been fascinating. It also would have been a very challenging role for her, which I would have wanted to see her do. Again, like she perfectly embodies like that mysterious dark woman of the 40s so I think that would have been so cool but Jean Tierney is just perfect it's a perfect movie and I can't really change anything without changing the whole thing
1: Mm -hmm. you're right in that none of us can change anything about the motion picture Laura made in 1944 we are incapable of doing that yeah again these are not oh I didn't enjoy it because of this They are just things I could see could have been improved upon. And there's also, you know, a direction element of that. Actors are setting up the layers that they're called for in any scene. And so should Preminger have pushed further to have her give us a little more nuance and a little more like, ooh, is she she a suspect? Yeah, probably. I think too, it's interesting. So I thought I had read this, but just in rechecking it out, Mm -hmm. that. Ruben Mammalian had been attached and actually had cast Laird Krieger as Lidecker, which is bonkers. But that was the perfect dichotomy of if you meet Lidecker and you're like, oh yeah, he wanted her. Or is more like just an ominous, like, oh, that's a bad guy. Like, yeah, that's not a good dude right there. Whereas with Clifton Webb, you get those shades of, he's the sparkly, witty Side character to provide a comic relief. But so the casting changes, the directing changing hands several times. I loved that the main problem with them attaching Otto was he oversaw an adaptation of it because it's based on a novel. It's Vera Craspi. Casperi. Thank you. <laughs> and she hated what he did. And then also the things that she hated, it was a whole thing back and forth, studio crap. But also some of the things that he brought on are things that I think improve it a lot, like a lot of the Lydecker stuff and the sort of misdirects and things. It would be interesting to read the source material of Laura Very um, much. knowing all of that. Going back to
2: Laura as a character and Jean Tierney and what she brought So when you watch the trailers, when you read about this, there's such a desire to turn Laura into a femme fatale. You hear, oh, this evil woman who knows how to play men, and she's using these men as her tools. Do we see Laura as a femme fatale?
0: Absolutely not. (laughs) For me, anyway. One of the other films that we thought about discussing when it came to Jean Tierney and her career and celebrating what would have been her 101st birthday, November 19th, was Leave Her to Heaven. And she absolutely is a femme fatale in that. There's no doubt. But Laura, just complete opposite to me. I don't see her really capable of doing much harm in this movie. Yeah. Again, there there are those scenes with the, the interrogation scene where you've got that little bit of shredded out that they purposely put in your mind. But I think if they hadn't even done that, we would never have considered her a threat.
1: But even in the interrogation scene, they're at the party and McPherson's like, dear everyone at this party, I'm about to arrest the suspect. Like I said, I'm an Agatha Christie fan, but that seemed a little like I've gathered you all today to belabor explaining how I know things. It was so weird. And then he does that and he grabs her and she looks more like crestfallen of like, oh, I'm an innocent and I'm going to be accused of it. And it's the way of the world. Like, even when he's asking her a question, I still was never in a doubt, which is why I would agree with Samantha. I do not think this character and her portrayal of it is in any way a femme fatale. This is a noir without a femme fatale. But and it's entirely because I never once think she actually did it, which is I don't feel that again, like it would be fun for story reasons if that was missing. But I also don't think Laura lacks a femme fatale, like, oh, wouldn't it be nice if we had a more like slinky, like manipulative female presence? No, you get a couple really interesting women in Laura, like the balance between Laura and what we've discussed and then her aunt, whose character's name is Anne. And until at least halfway through, I thought Shelby kept calling her aunt, like aunt, come here. And I was like, oh. God, what are you two up to? It was so horrifying to me that he was calling her aunt. Ugh. No, it's her name is Anne, but you get her and she is so forthright about her interest in him. Everyone's supposed to be a suspect, right? And so you're like, oh, so maybe the aunt has enough slipperiness. She's never like super on the pedestal of suspect because they're doing this, but it would not have surprised me if it had cycled back to that. And you have that amazing scene with them when they go to the restroom at that party and Laura's sitting down and the aunt just like takes out, puts on a lipstick. And the whole time she's like, you should give up Shelby because like he's shown you, he is a garbage person, but I am also a garbage person. And it will work out well for both of us. It is so unique. It's so crazy. And with the end, when Laura's like, um excuse me, are you a killer? And she's like, excuse you, I am not. But I could. The whole complications of that exchange, the aunt gives you all of the conflict the whole time. You're like, I don't hate her. I have all these things for her, but she definitely could have done it. I'd rather have that. Because femme fatales often, when I think of them, there's that manipulative innocence to them. And that's its own thing. This movie doesn't have that, but I don't think it needs that flavor either.
2: Judith Anderson could bring the crazy. I mean, Mrs. Danvers, you could easily see her as the killer.
0: Absolutely. And I would go as far as to say, I mean, we were just discussing, like, is there a femme fatale here? If she had gotten more screen time, she would have been. That's as simple as it goes. And and that scene is, that scene is fantastic. Talk about a scene that passes the Bechdel test, like, perfect.
1: Truth. Decades before Bechdel was born. Yes, it really does. It's also one of those scenes that to me, I'm like, oh, this is also a theater director. It is a single shot, you know, medium shot of these two women in repose. They don't move the whole time. And yet you get so much. It's like at the perf, like canted angle, like you're seeing just enough of both their faces. You feel a sense of threat. It's great. Like that's, that's great. It's its own kind of direction and it's done really well
2: just to continue on with one thing. I mean, this is episode is partially to talk about Jean Tierney as well. I found with the timing very interesting. And I know, Samantha, you've been diving into her a little bit more. This was her return to film after taking some time off. And it's interesting to see this as almost a growth role for her. I know I was looking at her clips. And there was a lot of talk about the novelty in her playing, quote unquote, this, remember these are coming from period sources, an American girl. She had been playing a lot of, what's quote quote unquote, remember period sources, ethnic characters prior to this. So it's very interesting to see her taking this poised character after playing that and then... Thinking through, she had been living on the base with her husband at the time, Oleg Cassini. She had just had her first daughter. She had caught German measles during her pregnancy, and her daughter was born with a number of birth defects. So this would have been shot during that time when they were figuring this out. I thought that was a very loaded time for Tierney. She's 23 years old, but you don't see it. And she was going through so much growth, having, I can't think of a more challenging time to be shooting a film like this. It gives some very interesting depth to Tierney as an actress and everything she went through.
0: A lot of my favorite female performances in classic film are a result of trying times that the actresses went through. And A great example that I always, always go back to is Carol Lombard in 20th Century. She played that role and she was so fantastic at it right after her fiance was shot and killed. So, and she just brought a fantastic performance. And I think under duress, you know, it just shows what women are capable of. And I think Jean Tierney pulled off the exact same thing here. But I do find it really fascinating. I wanted to read a specific quote that she had because I I was doing my research on her. I read her autobiography and research for this episode. And she was always incredibly humble about her Role in this film's success. She actually said, I never felt my own performance was much more than adequate. I'm pleased that audiences still identify me with Laura as opposed to not being identified at all. Their tributes, I believe, are for the character, the dreamlike Laura, rather than any gifts I brought to the role. I don't mean to sound modest. I doubt that any of us connected with the movie thought that it had a chance of being a kind of mystery classic or enduring beyond its generation. If it worked, it was because the ingredients turned out to be right. How do you guys feel about that?
1: There's something so heartbreaking, especially knowing Jean Tierney's story about that separating herself from praise. And to me, it doesn't even read as humbleness. It has a self-effacing, self-loathing quality of diminishing what she did or brought to the table and how that ties into her mental health struggles because it's not just that she had these traumatic things happening in her life it's how her brain worked and how mm-hmm. it worked against her and that comes across in that quote and it's really kind of heartbreaking because she does do beautiful work in Laura All my like issues with wishing Laura had more of a level of suspicion around her is almost more of a direction thing i do think right. i truly think Jean tierney Is capable of having added that layer, but wasn't directed to do so. And her revisiting this and probably her other work that she's known for and seeing herself as just like a presence in it rather than a driving force is heartbreaking. I, know I was watching some
2: TV interviews with her and your use of the word self-effacing really kind of struck a chord with me because I know she was referencing her mental health struggles and she kept referring to it as a weakness, as a weakness she had, as a weakness in her brain, you know, a weakness that was ingrained kind of within her. And you can only imagine the struggles of someone who would have been fighting those battles and having those issues would have had at a time when we didn't understand what was going on. I mean, she went through electroshock repeatedly and how much internalized issues she would have had debating with how we thought about mental health and mental illness when we have more of a clear lens on it now. And what a tragedy that was that we didn't understand it and she didn't have a bigger career, a longer career. I mean, she did such amazing work here. And we know she had the ability for depth. We saw it in Leave Her to Heaven. Within two years of this, one of the most fascinating, interesting, complex characters who
1: does real problematic stuff. She truly was a treasure depression, especially, she had, sounds like several diagnoses, but Mm -hmm. depression is a sneaky illness in that it makes the people who have it, it adds to just the fact that it makes them feel terrible and then makes them feel that that feeling terribleness is unearned in some ways. I'm fully supposing now, I don't know, Gene Tierney, but if you look at this woman who on paper had so many things going for her, She was young. She was beautiful. She had a thriving career. She had like all this promise to have that and feel as destitute as she did repeatedly, chronically. It could be very easy to have that turn against her. Mental illness is that it like messes with people's brains in really harmful ways. And I think especially when societally you're looking at as like, oh, this needs to be shocked out of you. It was probably described to her as a weakness. So, above just feeling like that, it was probably like medically explained to her, like, oh, this is a failing in you, rather than, oh, this is part of your synapses. We're still in the process of helping people look around that. But I feel it's hard for everyone. And I imagine for a woman with as many gifts as Jean Tierney had and was given, there might be a whole other layer of guilt and self-admonishment on top of that to be going through it.
0: It really makes me wonder. I could never downplay the struggles that she faced her entire life mentally. But it does make me wonder how much of her own dismissiveness towards her work was due to the fact that she never really got the recognition for her performances that she deserved. She was never really critically acclaimed compared to a lot of the other actresses from her era that turned in just as good performances as Jean Tierney did. I can name half a dozen films that were probably Oscar worthy and she was never nominated for an Oscar. So she was such a product of the studio system. She was beautiful. That's what everyone focused on and not so much her talent and her achievements in the field. And it makes you wonder, is that why she thought that way of herself?
2: I'm part of Laura's persona. And that would have been like we said, that would have been a different film with a different actress in that part. And we've all said at various points, this is a five star perfect movie. You don't get much better than this. This is one of the iconic noirs. She makes this movie with her presence and her effect. She can just stand there and she contributes something to the scene. So I mean, I would completely agree. She doesn't get the recognition she deserves. Going back to
0: that quote, I think she is correct in the sense that it absolutely is a team effort, the success of Laura. I think this film would would not be the classic that it is without Otto Preminger's direction, without Joseph Lachelle's cinematography, without Dana Andrews, without Judith Anderson, without Vincent Price. But we absolutely, including Jean... Cannot dismiss what she brings to the table and how fantastic and subtle she is.
1: Yeah, the one thing she definitely has that is really hard to unlock. I may have wanted more suspiciousness about her, but she certainly has an ethereal mysteriousness. And that is something that not everyone has. Like she brought to the table on top of her performance. And to be a character and a woman that people want to be projecting onto in the way that so many of the other characters in this story do, they all want Laura to mean and be something. And Gene Tierney provided both something that they could project onto. But something they could want to claim as well. Like it's hard to be both the like void of projection, and I think that that's a a real testament to her gifts. It's the male gaze argument. This movie's held up in
2: academic circles as kind of a, the problem. The male gaze in film, you know, the whole thing is revolving around her portrait. But rewatching it. This time through, I was struck by that mysteriousness, and to me, Tierney injects that figure that they want to maybe be the murderer. She's a woman. She's got a job. She's got a trashy boyfriend. She's got doubts. She's got She's, got an,
1: she's got an overdecorated apartment. Exactly. Yeah. We all
2: want that. <laughs> And she makes it in a team effort because Clifton Webb. The movie is not what it is without Clifton Webb. But with Gene Tierney's accomplishments need to be celebrated.
1: Here, here. I am all for people going to explore Gene Tierney's work more. We talked about a couple of different films that we could discuss. She has so much. But I think looking it in light of her diminishing her own ideas of her talent, please posthumously go give Gene Tierney. Some love and appreciate what she's brought to the table. What about as a wrap-up question?
2: Other Gene Tierney recommendations for people who might not be as familiar with her work? I mean,
1: it's hard because the first thing that comes to mind is "Leave Her to Heaven," which we've Mm -hmm. already mentioned, and it's one of those like, "Oh, is this the generic?" But it's it's like presumed for a reason, you know, like a stereotype is a stereotype for a reason, like. Leave her to heaven and her work in it, especially. I, I really liked, I think that you said that, Kim, the comparison of that to Laura and like looking at the shades and the darkness or the sex scene. Like, there's things that she's doing in that that you're like, oh, yeah, she has all of these tools in her toolbox. And I think it was her maybe most acclaimed performance. And so, I'll say for like the completest element to have the broadest thing in there, I would definitely say if you haven't seen Leave her to heaven see that and appreciate that. Samantha will probably have a B-side cut.
0: I wanted to make sure I didn't leave anything off. To be honest, Laura has my heart as far as Gene Tierney films go. Laura yeah, nice has one. my heart. If we're looking for Gene Tierney films to recommend, Laura is going to be at the top no matter what. "Leave Her to Heaven is the perfect antithesis of this. It's another fantastic movie to check out of hers. But she had such a great filmography, you guys. She really just excelled in comedies. She's covered the whole range. I also mentioned Where the Sidewalk Ends. Again, perfect other side of the coin to a film like Laura that really reteams everyone. But a few others that I just have to mention, The Razor's Edge with Tyrone Power, my fave. Heaven Can Wait is a really fantastic, lighthearted film with Donna Michi. She's so great in that. Gives me a lot of like up vibes. If you watch it, you'll know what I mean. It's Um, a delight. Yeah, absolutely. And also the other Jean Tierney classic that we have not mentioned yet today, The Ghost and Mrs. Muir. And it's great because, you know, we're in fall, we're in spooky season. Mm -hmm. Such a fantastic one to check out. I really love her in that too.
2: I'm surprised I have others on top of that. Dragonwick, which I already mentioned. And then you also got Dishy Vincent Price in there as well. Of course, I mean, Echo, Ghost and Mrs. Mirror, Leave Her to Heaven, Whirlpool. I thought she had really interesting work in there. And Night in the City. I you know, cannot speak highly enough about Night in the City as a film. Richard Widmark, personal favorite as well. But she's just, she's such a good antithesis really to him in there as well. And working with Jules Dassin, to me, that's probably my favorite, favorite noir. But she's just keeps popping up and there's such versatility there.
1: I'm thrilled that you figured out a way to work in Richard Widmark twice in a gene tierney laura discussion bravo <laughs>
2: it's noir. it's November. it bravo. has to happen
1: <laughs> yeah also that you said do you guys have another recommendation and i heard that as a singular so i said one film and then you're like oh cool drea here's 18 films we
0: can't we can't be reined in i'm sorry
1: you know top
2: three means top eight i mean that's just how this happens I mean, Lever to Heaven
0: is the obvious one. If I had to recommend only one more, I would probably say The Ghost of Mrs. Muir*. That'd be my, my other one.
1: I second all of your smart responses. I just want to say I was not trying to be begrudging. If, if you have any more, throw them out, please. No, I do not. <laughs> no, no, I don't actually. And
2: everyone else can send them in too.
1: Do you have thoughts on
2: Laura? Thoughts on Jean Tierney? Thoughts on Dishy Vincent Price? get in touch with us. You know where to find us. Ideally, if not, you'll be hearing that in a couple minutes here. So send it on in and maybe we will dive into that in a future episode. And that's going to close out this edition of Ticklish Business. As always, you can follow Ticklish Business wherever you get your podcasts. Help us out. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. As every other podcast tells you, these reviews do matter. We are available on Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, all those podcasty places. We're also flitting around all the social media places as well, but we spend most of our time on Twitter at ticklish underscore biz, Instagram at ticklish biz, and give us a visit over on YouTube, why don't you? Please like and subscribe if you feel so inclined. We can be found at http www.youtube.com slash c slash ticklish business. As always, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. We're looking to get 300 subscribers on Patreon so we can start a new ambitious series examining TCM's 52 must-see movies and why they matter. Right now, Ticklish Business subscribers can get early access to all videos before they air on the site, and Kristen and I are diving into a new series of double features with some goodness coming your way soon. Samantha, where can your fans find you?
0: I am mostly on Twitter at Classic Film Geek. And you can find my Cooking with the Stars post over at Classic Movie Hub. My blog is musingsofaclassicfilmmatic.com. And I am now a lot more active on Instagram at Classic Film Geek.
1: Drea, how about you? I am a mysterious presence on the World Wide Web in that I'm a very sporadic poster. But I'm on Twitter at TheDreaClark. And I also co-host a weekly contemporary film podcast called Maximum Film, where you can find where you get podcasts.
2: Excellent. As I mentioned, my name is Kim. You can find me most often at Twitter at kpierce624. You can catch up with what I'm watching over on Letterboxd at kpierce624 as well. Last but not least, our fearless leader, Kristen, can be found on Twitter at Journeys in Classic Film. For those who are interested, Kristen will be running her annual classic film Secret Santa gift exchange this year. Sign up is free and why don't you join us? It's getting bigger every year. For details, reach out to Journeys in Classic Film at gmail.com. Finally, check out our website at Journeys in When this episode hits, we'll be smack dab in the middle of Noir November and everything that entails. Remember, our birthday tribute this month is Roy Scheider, and I'll be continuing into December with something near and dear to my heart, Martin Milner, to celebrate what would have been his 90th birthday. However, with Richard Widmark also having a birthday and Steve Allen's centennial, look out for lots of Kim-branded content coming to the website next month. We'll be back with a new episode soon. Till then...